0: Welcome to Skim This. What do you get when you mix soaring inflation and a truck driver shortage? It's the recipe for a holiday shopping drama. Serving size worldwide. We'll crunch the numbers, but also help you de-stress with some insights on the psychology of gift-giving. We've also got the latest on UN climate talks in Scotland, a skim on the big new infrastructure bill that finally passed Congress, and a look at whether paid leave is or isn't going to become the law. And we'll hear from some of you in the process.
1: It's like we're in 2021. We're expected to work as individuals who are not thinking about their personal lives and growing their families, but
0: that's constantly on our minds. And before all of that, we'll bring you up to speed on what happened last week at the Astroworld Music Festival in Houston. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Last Friday, nine people were tragically killed at a music festival in Houston where rapper Travis Scott was performing. As families mourn their loved ones, people are searching for accountability and answers for how this could have happened in the first place. Travis Scott and the event organizer Live Nation have both been sued. Scott has issued an apology and is paying the funeral costs for the victims.
1: Send out prayers to the, to the ones that was lost last night. We're actually working right now to identify the families so we can help assist them through this tough time. My fans really mean the world to me and I always just really want to leave them with a positive experience.
0: Meanwhile, others are still just trying to make sense of what happened, including Joey Guerra, the music critic for the Houston Chronicle. We called Guerra to break down what happened. Joey, thanks for joining us. My first question for you is, what was Astroworld supposed to be and what did this festival mean for the city of Houston?
2: I think that's, An additional part of this that makes it so sad is Astroworld was meant as a celebration of the city. It gets its name from an amusement park that everyone in Texas probably remembers, knows, and loves. Travis Scott had recreated some of the imagery and carnival rides and games inside this festival. You know, he'd had lots of community events leading up to it in the week before. So this was more than just a music festival. I mean, this was really a celebration of the city in a lot of ways.
0: What do we know about what actually happened that led to the deaths of multiple people at this show?
2: So what has been reported by police and fire is that when the concert started, there was a big surge of people that moved toward the stage. And that happens, I think, at any festival, really almost any concert where people are standing up. When the performer comes on, everyone gets excited, wants to get closer to the stage. But because there were so many people concentrated in that area, it quickly started kind of, you know, really suffocating people, quite honestly, they couldn't breathe. And that's when I think people started passing out. They were pulling people out at certain points. I know Travis did, you know, I was there and I heard him stop the concert a few times to point out specific people that were in distress.
1: We need somebody to help him. Somebody passed out right here. Somebody passed out right here. Hold on, don't touch him, don't touch him. Everybody just back up. Security, somebody help, jump in real quick. Keep going, just
3: keep it just way.
2: There was so much going on and so many people that when that area started compressing, I think people started to panic. Hey, back up. Which then, of course, incited it more. And it was just like a domino effect. I talked to someone for a story today who told me that he was kind of watching it from the back. And when Travis asked everyone to put their hands up, two hands to the sky. but they couldn't put them back down because there was no room.
1: Two hands to the sky. Two hands up, y'all. Two hands up.
0: I mean, it really is everyone's worst nightmare in so many ways. You were there. Did you have an indication of what was going on? Kind of when did you start to learn about what was happening or what had happened?
2: I think it's important to kind of understand that everyone who was at this event has a different story or a different perspective of what happened. Of course, the people that were right in the middle of it, the people that endured it and survived and then the people who had no clue this was happening. I mean, I think it's, people are seeing these close-up videos on social media and thinking, how did you not see this happening? How did you not know? And a lot of us didn't, you know, and that's the scary part. I was on the ground, you know, among the concert goers, but I wasn't in that big sort of mass of people in the front. I did see emergency vehicles kind of cutting through the crowd at different points. But again, it just really, as terrible as this might sound, it didn't register to me that anything really bad was happening. Just because, I mean, I've been to tons of festivals and I've seen people being pulled out, people being, you know, attended to within the crowd at many, many shows. So it didn't, I didn't understand the seriousness of it. And then the show was over. I walked out. There was really no sense of urgency with the initial, I think, people that left the area. I didn't find out until I got home, started to write, and I got a text from someone checking on me.
0: I'm curious, were there any warning signs that something like this was going to happen?
2: I think in hindsight, when you look back at the kind of mood and environment of a Travis Scott show, you know, absolutely, of course. I rewatched the Netflix documentary yesterday, and I was just completely struck by the first 10 minutes where it's just like these scenes of mayhem and people being pulled out of the crowd. Injuries, you know, you see emergency vehicles. It was eerie to watch it because it almost felt like a foreshadowing of what happened in Houston. You know, the difference is this documentary was kind of using it as a selling point. You know, look at Travis's show. They're so crazy. This is what happens at a Travis show. There were fans that they spoke to that were doing voiceovers that were saying things like, I survived the Travis show. When you go to a Travis show, you know what to expect. So it's just really tragic looking back on all of this, you know, that you can possibly see them as warning signs.
0: Going to concerts has been part of your job. It sounds like it's a part of your identity in a lot of ways. How did your experience over the weekend change your perspective on live music and what live music means
2: to you? I mean, I I can't even imagine what any of those people that were injured or killed went through and what their families are going through. But the worst parts for me has been, again, being there while this was happening and having no clue, you know? It just it's horrifying to think that you're at a concert singing along while people are being trampled and killed. I mean, it, it's a horrible thought, And you know, live music for me has been a part of my life since I was 12 years old. you know. I would go to concerts by myself, my parents would wait in the car outside the venue, you know, for me. And then this show in particular was the first live concert I'd really been to in 18 months. It, it really has, I think changed a lot of people's mindsets that went to this event. Because like me, I imagine a lot of people had not been to a show, much less a big festival like this. And in a lot of ways, I was looking forward to it. And to have this happen now, it really does scare me going forward, you know, to go to live shows, big ones and small ones. You just don't know what can happen. Things can change so quickly and so easily in that environment.
0: As you say, people are thinking about live music differently in the wake of this, where does accountability start and how do you think people are going to rethink these types of live events in the future?
2: There has to be, I think, some sort of systemic change because this is not something that is just a one-off. I mean, we've seen tragedies at concerts happen before, you know, this is among the deadliest, but this has happened in the past and it hasn't been addressed. I think with outdoor festivals, that environment, that atmosphere is just, I think, really ripe for something like this to happen. You know, they don't kind of cap how many people can be in front of a certain stage. There are lots of things I think that could have been thought about or put in place that could have possibly prevented this. I think it does start with the concert promoters, the concert organizers. I mean, there are so many people involved in something of this scale that the performer is just the final piece in this. And I think there were possibly multiple failings at different levels. So I don't know if things are going to change because this has needed to be kind of changed or looked at for a long time. And it hasn't been.
0: Joey, thanks. Thanks for being with us.
2: Of course, of course.
0: Last week, Team Biden managed to do something they've been talking about forever. The $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill passed in the House. The bipartisan infrastructure bill finally passed both branches of Congress and is on its way to Biden's desk. So how's the government going to spend $1.2 trillion? Here's the answer in 60 seconds. The biggest check of $110 billion is going to highways, bridges, and roads. You know, traditional infrastructure. And that spending is long overdue, since, according to one report, one in three bridges in the U.S. is in urgent need of repair. Around $66 billion will go to freight and passenger rail, which could help out Amtrak with overdue maintenance. The other biggest checks, $65 billion each, go to expanding broadband access and improving the electric grid. An extra 15 billion goes to removing lead pipes, and billions more are set aside for protecting infrastructure from cyber attacks, floods, droughts, or wildfires. That money to adapt to climate change could be money well spent, as experts say climate change is already causing damage to the U.S. economy. There's also money in the bill for public transit and for fixing train tunnels along the East Coast. Some aging airports could also get a facelift while other funding could help change the future of transportation. More than $7 billion will help build a nationwide electric vehicle charging network, increasing access to charging and potentially getting more Americans to drive electric. Gas-guzzling school buses could also get swapped out for electric ones. And maybe these ones won't have gum stuck to the seats, at least right away. How'd we do? Want us to skim another topic from the news? Tweet us your suggestion using the hashtag SKIMTHIS. UN climate change talks are wrapping up this week in Glasgow, Scotland. There have been some breakthroughs. More than 100 countries pledged to reduce methane gas emissions. And more than 40 countries pledged to phase out coal, Though, some major users of coal, like the US, India, China, and Australia, sat out that commitment. And more than 100 countries pledged to end deforestation by 2030, a critical step toward ending habitat loss and reducing emissions from clearing and burning forests. Though, don't get too excited. Many of these same countries promised to do this back in 2014, and they still haven't followed through. Judging by the emotions outside the climate talks this week, Whatever progress we just skimmed isn't cutting it. The world needs to take some giant steps to prevent the worst effects of climate change. But top UN officials recapping the Glasgow talks this week said all they'd seen were toddler steps. To get a better sense of what has and hasn't gone down in Glasgow, we're joined by Juliet Eilprin, the deputy editor for climate and the environment at the Washington Post. Juliette, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Juliette, what wasn't so great about these climate talks? A lot of people saw images of people protesting the talks. What didn't happen that people wanted to happen?
3: I think there are a couple of significant issues. First and foremost, two of the biggest greenhouse gas emitters on the planet, China and Russia, did not have their leaders travel to the summit or even, for example, give a significant address by video. The second issue is that when you look at the science and the analysis, even with, for example, all the new pledges that have been made in the last few weeks, the UN has concluded that right now the world is still on a trajectory to warm by roughly 2.5 degrees Celsius. That's really significant. That means that not only is the world not making the more ambitious pledge it made in Paris in 2015, which is to keep warming to 1.5 degrees C by the end of the century, but that they're not even meeting the less ambitious goal of keeping the planet from warming 2 degrees C. So these commitments don't comport with what scientists are saying is needed to avert catastrophic warming.
0: And on that note, I kind of want to pivot into your investigation at the Post on global emissions reports that are coming from countries. Can you break down what you guys found for me? Sure.
3: Some colleagues and I have spent several months analyzing almost every single report that key nations, nearly 200 of them, have submitted to the UN where they detail what they claim are their greenhouse gas emissions and chart what they're doing to reduce it. And what we found is that there's a very significant gap between the emissions that countries are claiming they're responsible for and what's actually going up into the atmosphere. To put it in perspective, it means that the extent to which these emissions are being underreported is at the low end is more than what the U.S. emits in terms of greenhouse gas emissions each year. And at the high end, it's roughly equal to what China sends into the atmosphere each year. And so when you look at that kind of significant gap, it means that if you're not identifying these emissions, it becomes much harder to target them. As one scientist put it, it's like saying you're going to be on a diet and not counting all the calories of the food that you're eating.
0: Are there any countries whose tactics for underreporting their emissions really jumped out to you? You can take a developing country like Malaysia,
3: which used a series of accounting methods when it was describing what its emissions are and it put in its document to the UN that its trees are absorbing carbon four times faster than similar forests in its neighboring country of Indonesia. And again, that's very significant because it slashed 73% of the emissions that it said it was putting into the atmosphere each year.
0: It's pretty insane that some countries can just say, hey, our trees are four times better at capturing carbon than our neighbors' trees, and there's kind of like no consequence for saying that. I'm curious, UN conference organizers and protesters clearly aren't happy with what's gone down in Glasgow and the progress from these climate talks. What's the way forward here?
3: I think that you're right, that
0: plenty of activists
3: and plenty of young people particularly, are, are not satisfied. And I think one of the really interesting questions is whether as a result of all of this, do they mobilize politically even more than they have so far and therefore shift what kind of policies their countries pursue in the coming years? You know, one of the really interesting things is that this is ultimately a political process. It reflects the views to some extent of what voters think. And the environment has not been a top tier voting issue in certainly several countries, including the United States, but it is becoming increasingly important. And we've also seen that shift at a a faster clip, say in Europe and elsewhere. And so one of the really interesting things is this is this important inflection point that people are looking at. And depending on what comes out of it, if voters make this a higher priority, one could see different policies going forward, assuming that, again, they use the correct data and that there's a level of accountability involved.
0: Juliet, thanks so much. Thank you so much. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, let's head to Central America.
2: Tonight, all eyes are on Nicaragua's. President Daniel Ortega celebrates his re-election.
0: When is a presidential race not really a race? Nicaragua offers us a clue, after incumbent president Daniel Ortega's government put seven opposition candidates behind bars. That cleared the way for him to win a fourth term as president. Ortega once fought to topple a dictator in the 1970s, but that doesn't make him a friend to democracy now. He's changed the constitution to eliminate term limits and blocked international election observers and foreign journalists from watching this year's vote. Now, leaders from the U.S., E.U., and other Latin American countries have condemned Nicaragua's elections as being unfair and undemocratic. And on Wednesday, President Biden put new sanctions on the country. Meanwhile, violent crackdowns on protesters and dissidents have been driving a spike in migration out of the country and increasingly to the U.S. Add in the drama over these new elections and new sanctions, and it could spell further trouble for Nicaragua and the U.S. as it grapples with a steady flow of migrants trekking to the border. Managing asylum seekers is hard enough. And our next headline shows how much harder it gets when one country is trying to complicate things. Poland has accused Belarus of trying to trigger a major incident on the border between the two countries. Here's what's going on. On Tuesday, at least 2,000 migrants set up camp in freezing conditions at the border between Belarus and Poland in Eastern Europe. Quick reminder here, Belarus isn't part of the EU, and its heavily sanctioned leader is considered Europe's last dictator. He has quite the rap sheet when it comes to provoking EU countries, and this latest incident could be part of that pattern of behavior. Lately, a few EU countries have been recording a spike in people arriving from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Iran, and they're coming through Belarus. And maybe not by accident. EU leaders are now accusing Belarus of deliberately trying to create a migration crisis by allegedly flying in migrants and funneling them to the border with the EU. In response, Poland is now making it clear to migrants they're not getting in. And it's deployed 15,000 troops to the border as tensions rise between it, Belarus, and Belarus's ally, Russia. All this means the EU could have its next foreign policy crisis on its hands as it figures out how to stop what Belarus is doing. That's worth focusing on. But so is the plight of a couple thousand vulnerable people waiting at Poland's border who are clearly being used for political leverage. And our final headline this week.
3: It's one of those times where social media is a good thing.
0: Last week, a missing North Carolina team was rescued by Kentucky police after making a hand signal at passing cars that she learned on TikTok. The hand signal indicates distress or violence at home, and it involves raising your palm, tucking your thumb in, and folding your fingers over the top. When one driver recognized the signal, they called the police, who located the teen and arrested and charged the 61-year-old driver for unlawful imprisonment and sexual crimes involving a minor. We'll leave a link to a video of what this hand signal looks like in our show notes. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week, she shares insights and practical solutions on the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and Hollywood producer. Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences cultivating happiness and good habits. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to the show. Every few weeks, there's so much news happening in the world of business, we like to throw it all together into a segment we call All Biz. And this was one of those weeks, as international travelers started returning to the U.S. after more than a year of restrictions, and as the holidays and all the marketing around them start to creep closer. The first thing we've been watching involves travel. The international lockdown is ending as the U.S. reopens its borders to vaccinated passengers. This week, the U.S. lifted nearly two years of restrictions on travelers from 33 countries. That includes much of Europe, China, India, Mexico, and Canada. There are still some rules in place for travelers. In order for foreign visitors to enter the country, they'll have to be fully vaxxed, with a few exceptions, and show proof of a negative COVID test within three days of traveling. Unvaccinated Americans and children under 18 can also enter, but they will have to get a negative test within one day of their trip. So having a US passport doesn't get you out of those rules. Top U.S. government officials have already said the economy should get a boost as travel picks up, especially the travel, tourism, and hospitality sectors. Cities like Orlando, the home of Disney World, are especially excited to welcome foreign visitors. The city apparently used to welcome around six million international travelers a year before COVID. That's one good part of this story. But is the U.S. economy actually ready to welcome all these new visitors? Millions of workers have left jobs in hospitality and food service over the past year. And airlines are currently facing a daunting shortage of everyone from pilots to baggage handlers that's even forced them to cancel flights. So for international visitors finally able to visit the U.S., welcome back. But maybe don't expect the best service ever. Speaking of worker shortages, your labor is in such high demand right now that you're the new subject of some of the biggest marketing campaigns in the country. From fixing cars...
4: Are you ready to start a great career?
0: SafeLight is now hiring. ...to installing cable... Spectrum offers dynamic career opportunities to a diverse range of talent. ...working in a factory...
2: Amazon helped me with training and tuition. Today, I'm a medical assistant.
0: Or working for Uncle Sam.
2: I think there's a lot of benefits for a young oncologist who's looking for a position to come to the VA.
0: As of the end of August, which is the last time we got updated numbers, there were more than 10 million open jobs in the U.S. But judging by the hiring ads we've been seeing on TV or hearing on the radio, the companies most in need of workers right now have one thing in common. They really need drivers to get things from point A to point B.
2: My work gives people hope. I work at FedEx.
0: I'm very proud to be a part of Walmart's private fleet.
2: It's not magic that makes more holiday deliveries to homes in the U.S. than anyone else. It's the hardworking people of the United States Postal Service.
0: A report from September found that this year, Amazon, the U.S. Postal Service, Walmart, and FedEx were among the top companies advertising new jobs on the radio or on TV, with an emphasis on radio. Evidently, the thinking is... More people potentially interested in driving a truck will be listening there. And these companies really need potential drivers to send in their resumes. U.S. supply chain issues aren't getting any better. And unless more Americans sign up to be truck drivers, these issues could get a lot worse as we head into the holidays. Reportedly, there's an 80,000 driver shortage right now. One potential longer-term fix could come from that infrastructure bill we talked about earlier. It includes a three-year program to train new, younger truck drivers, lowering the minimum age of a driver that crosses state lines to 18 from the current minimum of 21. Though that's not gonna help immediately. So as we said a few weeks ago, if there's a year to tackle your holiday shopping a bit early, this might be the year. And speaking of the holiday crunch in the supply chain, a number of big retailers and top fashion brands are now saying holiday sales at least in 2021, may not be a thing. Steve Madden is planning fewer holiday promotions, while Michael Kors is actually planning to increase the cost of its handbags. With retailers running low on new inventory, secondhand retailers like ThredUp and Poshmark are reportedly expecting a rush of customers eager to buy whatever's available. Though according to some analysts, not so exciting holiday prices now could give way to even better discounts next year. That's because delays mean holiday items retailers placed huge orders for may not reach shelves until 2022, at which point stores will be eagerly looking for buyers. And finally, if supply chain issues are gonna make it hard to get what you think is the perfect gift for someone else, there might be one more reason to rethink your plans. It turns out, there's been some pretty hardcore scientific research around the psychology of gift giving. A few years ago, researchers from Carnegie Mellon and Indiana University concluded that gift givers often misjudge the preferences of others. One common mistake is that gift givers often prioritize what they think are desirable gifts, with a wow factor, when a lot of people ultimately prefer things they'll actually use. Another is that givers often misjudge the extent to which their values overlap with the person they're giving a gift to. For instance, even if I care about the fair trade, handmade backstory of a present, you might not. And finally, surprises may not be all they're talked up to be. You might not think it's creative enough to shop off someone's wish list, but researchers found people who received items they asked for are more appreciative of gift givers who actually listen. Psychologist Dr. Carol Rubinstein says, even if asking someone what they want feels a little transactional, the end result of giving and receiving a gift that's actually wanted is worth it being able to communicate it is super awkward and uncomfortable. People never used to ask me what I wanted either, but I've just seen going through this and being a
1: psychologist now and seeing how actually heavy gifts are with like the emotion attached to it that people can feel and then not wanting to get rid of it because they feel like this was important for the person but not so much for them. And so it carries so much
3: weight. And so if you're able to be able to give that in a way that respects the other person. And if your intentions are to make the other person feel good, I think it's a win-win for
1: everyone to know exactly what someone wants and to be able to be like, I saw it and I value what you
0: want. It's not just so much what I want for you, but I value what you want as well. We've left a link on the research around the do's and don'ts of gift giving in our show notes. Congress may have passed an infrastructure bill, but there's another huge legislative priority still on the table, a social spending bill encompassing everything from drug price cuts to universal pre-K. But there's one policy whose place in or not in the bill has been hotly contested, paid family leave. Paid family leave lets parents take time off to care for a new child after childbirth, adoption, or foster care placement. And it allows families to continue to receive an income while doing so. Right now, the U.S. is one of just seven countries in the entire world that doesn't offer national paid maternity leave. While some employers do offer it on their own, only an estimated one quarter of the U.S. workforce has access to paid family leave right now. Over the past week, we've heard from a lot of you on social media about what paid family leave means or would mean to you. So we wanted to pass the mic to hear some of your stories, starting with how paid leave determines when or if you can start a family. At the tone,
3: please record your message.
0: Lack of paid family leave
4: is the number one reason why my husband and I are so so not planning a family right now and very hesitant to even talk about it. I am very scared to risk the career that I've built for the past 12, 13 years just because I want to also have a family, and it just sucks that we have to choose.
0: That feeling of having to choose between work and family doesn't just start when you begin the family planning process. I just find
1: it so bizarre. It's like we're in 2021, we're expected to work as individuals who are not thinking about their personal lives and growing their families. But that's constantly on our mind. It's like almost taboo to like even discuss during your interviews and things like that. It's like red flags go up the moment they hear that you're in your 30s and you're married. And it's like they just expect that next steps will be, you know, having a baby.
0: Not to mention, not having access to paid family leave can have enormous financial and emotional consequences.
1: I work for a meetings and event planning company, and I just had a baby this past spring, and... Their policy was basically zero pay. They didn't even pay for my health insurance premiums because if you don't have a paycheck, there's no way for them to take the premiums out of your paycheck. So I actually took three months completely unpaid, no salary at all. And I actually had to cut a check to my company to pay them back over $1,000 to cover my three months of health insurance premiums while I was out. So it was just a huge blow. And and just beyond disheartening and hurtful to know that, like, my company didn't support me through this huge, you know, biggest moment of my life to, you know, have a baby. I suffered from really bad postpartum anxiety that I never thought would happen to me, but it did. And I had a really, really hard time going back only after three months. I definitely was not ready to go back, but I absolutely had to just to, like, you know, pay bills and stay afloat.
0: Some of you told us, even when you've tried to lobby for better policies at your workplace, you've been shot down. I work at a prestigious engineering
4: firm. Before I was pregnant, I'd been working at the company for about three years. I started asking questions about parental leave. We did not have any maternity or paternity leave. And it's actually a question I hadn't asked previously. I was a bit scared, too, during my interview. So I found out we did not have parental leave. And when I pushed on that to try and get it for us, some of the responses I got from two different partners were literally, if we give it to women, then we have to give it to men. And then the other thing that I heard was, if we were to give you parental leave, then all the women before you who didn't have it would be angry. There are so many things to be said about that, <laughs> but it it was just unbelievable to me that, that was that was the response I got.
0: But when families are given paid leave, whether through their employer or through government assistance, the difference can be life changing. When I had my first child, one week of all 12 weeks that I took off
4: were paid, and it was at 60%. And it was basically a slap in the face. My second child was born in September 2020. There was the family's first coronavirus response act that I was able to take advantage of. I was able to get about 80% of my pay covered for a full 12 weeks, so my company was not paying for it. It was wonderful to have that during the pandemic. It was just so nice to be able to breastfeed and pump at home and not go into a closet at work like I did with my first child. It was night and day. The difference was amazing. The bonding time was incredible. Completely different
0: experience. Some of you shared other positive stories of companies that compensated you for the time you needed. And some of you even got your companies to update their policies.
1: My first task in my new role, which was a director-level position, was to develop and formalize a parental leave policy that would be company-wide. So we started, of course, with a standard 12-week. We floated around like a floating four weeks that you can use anytime throughout the year. And something really incredible happened when we shared it with the CEO of the company. He basically said, let's mix the floating four weeks. Let's do 16 weeks of fully paid leave immediately, you know, kind of basically starting whenever your maternity leave needs to start. So I just wanted to share that because I think that it's a very positive experience regardless of what's going on with the U.S. government and how they decide or decide to not support parents. There are small businesses out there that are doing everything that they can to support their employees, which I think
0: is just as important. We want to take a second to thank you all for sharing your stories. We also want to give you an update on where things stand with paid leave right now. A few weeks ago, paid leave got cut out from Democrats' social spending bill. But then, after a lot of public outrage, it's back on the table. But House Democrats are compromising on some pretty major details, like reducing the number of weeks from 12 down to four which is barely any time at all. We should also note, there's no guarantee even those four weeks of paid leave will fly with some moderate Democrats in the Senate. Meaning, whether this issue gets tackled in this social spending bill, in a standalone bill, or at all, is very much up for debate. So watch this space, and call your representatives. We're also encouraging listeners to use the hashtag showusyourleave on social to share your own paid leave stories. thanks for listening to skim this today's episode was skimmed by me alex carr along with our associate producer kira long the senior producer of skim this is luke vargas the skim senior audio engineer is andrew calloway and graylin brashear is our head of audio skim this will be back in your feed again next thursday until then for more skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter head on over to theskim.com